Good to see you here at the EU public meeting. I want you to talk very briefly to the person next to you and compare notes on this one fact. What's the highest in altitude you've ever been? What's the highest in altitude, not clown- counting plane travel? Okay, though if you're an astronaut, we'll count that. But like, not counting plane travel, what's the highest in altitude you've ever been? Just chat to the person next to you, compare notes. The advantage of being at high altitude is that you can see a lot further, right? If you've been bushwalking or you're down in some sort of valley or canyon and you're walking along, it might all be very beautiful, seeing lots of very beautiful, interesting things, but it's very difficult when you're down in the valley to actually have a sense of really where you are apart from your immediate surroundings. It's not until you climb out of the valley and you get to the top of the sort of the mountainside and then you actually can see the Great Vista before you, and then you have a sense of when you were in the valley of where you were really placed and what the other sort of landscape around you is actually like. It gives you a new perspective, right? It freshens your eye, opens your eyes to what reality is. Well, this next 30 minutes, I, I'm inviting you in the next 30 minutes as we look at this section of God's Word to climb with me out of the valley, the little valley in which you live your life. It's a, I hope and pray it's a good life. I hope it's a lovely life. Lots of great things in your life, though I'm sure, because you're a human being living in the world we're living in, there's probably trials and tribulations in your life as well. But I want to invite you to climb out of your little valley and climb up the mountainside through God's word here in Isaiah and just see for a moment the larger picture. That's what we're going to do. Now, when you do that, it can be unsettling. It can actually be a bit personally destabilizing because it changes your perception of your own life. And as a result of these 30 minutes, it is quite possible if God works through his word as he's promised, (coughs) that your life might not be the same again. You might actually make decisions as a result of these 30 minutes that will change the course, the direction, the decisions you would make from this moment forward. I don't say that lightly. I say that because of the particular content that we're looking at in God's Word today. So I'm going to lead us in prayer that God would soften our hearts, that He would open our eyes, that He would give give us stamina to climb the mountain, and that we would see. Alright? So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to open your word and the Christian Bible together. And we pray, Lord, that you would speak to us through your word as you promised to your glory and to the furtherance of your purposes. In the name of the Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Okay, have you got your Bible there? It'd be great to open up a Bible on your call it up on your phone. What we've been looking at over this week and next week is... Some themes in the back half of this Old Testament book, the book of Isaiah. EU decided this year to have Isaiah as their book of the year, so half of all the EU public meetings this year have been from the book of Isaiah. And these last two weeks, we've just got two more sessions on Isaiah. And what I'm doing is from chapter 40 through to 66, there's a number of key themes. And we've already tracked some of those key themes, the ministry of the servant, the significance of the city of Jerusalem. We, we track those through earlier in the year. 
I'm going to track two more themes over these two weeks in this back half of the book of Isaiah. And today, the particular theme is the theme of salvation that goes to the ends of the earth. This is the particular theme that we're looking at from Isaiah 43 to 66. I'm jumping in, as you can see there on the screen, into three particular sections. Chapter 45, that we just had read for us. I'm going to very briefly touch on some of the stuff in chapters 55 and 56, which is a beautiful couple of chapters, but we'll just touch there very briefly. And then again, look at a little bit of chapter 66 to get an idea of this theme as it runs through this section of the book. That's the goal. Okay, so let's start out by thinking about what we just heard read for us from Isaiah chapter 45. And I've got a couple of points, but the first one is this. Isaiah chapter 45 makes the point about the one true living God's singularity. Now, if you're a physicist or a mathematician or something, you're used to the language of singularity. Singularity is just a particular sort of point that stands uniquely disconnected from other things. It's not continuous. It just means God's utter uniqueness, which is an oxymoron, isn't it? You don't need to be utterly unique. You're either unique or you're not, He really is unique. God is unique. The one true living God is unique. Have a look there if you've got your Bible open. I'm going to point out a couple of things from this chapter. First of all, verses 18 and 19. Verses 18 and 19. Let's have a look there. See what he says. For this is what the Lord says. He who created the heavens, he is God. He who fashioned and made the earth, he founded it. He did not create it to be empty, but formed it to be inhabited. He says, I am the Lord and there is no other. I've not spoken in secret from somewhere in a land of darkness. I've not said to Jacob's descendants, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Notice here what the one true living God says. He says, I'm the one who created all things, but not just the heavens, the earth, I also created to be inhabited. That is, I created you as well. I created all these things. I am God. There is no other. There is only one being who truly is God. Even though in our world there are many so-called gods. There are millions of gods that are worshipped. But the one true living God says, actually, I alone There is no other who really is God. He's the one who's created everything. He's the only true God. And because of that, because he's the one who's created you, he's your God. I mean, you might not decide to have him as your God, but the only God that really exists is him. He's the only real God that you can have. The God who's revealed himself as the Lord here in the Christian Old Testament. That's not the only thing he says. Keep going down to verse 20 in chapter 21. He also, in verse 21, he says, I'm the only saviour. Let me read that to you. He says, gather together and come. Assemble, you fugitives from the nations. Ignorant are those who carry about idols of wood, who pray to gods that cannot save. Declare what is to be. Present it. Let them take counsel together. Who foretold this long ago? Who declared it from the distant past? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no God apart from me, a righteous God and a saviour. There is none but me. A bit of 
um, context here, you might remember from when we looked at the book earlier in the year, at this particular moment, the nation of Israel, the Old Testament nation of Israel, are standing on a precipice. They are standing because of their rejection of the one true living God, that rejected his word and his ways, they were now about to be go into exile. They're going to be overrun by the Babylonians, sent into exile. This is a terrible, terrible thing. And the one true living God says, it is going to happen. There is no avoiding it. It is going to happen. However, because of his great love, he actually gives them a word of comfort even as they're on the edge of that precipice. That word of comfort goes from chapter 40 through to chapter 66, right? It's a long, big word of comfort. And that's what we're sort of looking at. What's the comfort here? Well, the comfort here is he is the one who can save. Those other so-called gods that are not really gods, they can't save, but the one true living God, he can and he wants to save. Now, our world doesn't really like this message because this message of God's singularity, that he is the only true God and that he's the only one who can save, that is an anti-polytheism message. But our world loves all our different gods, whether particular gods of particular religions or whether just the god of career and comfort and pleasure that, assume, that consumes us in Sydney. We love all our gods, but this, this is an anti-polytheistic message. It's also an anti-pluralism message because it says there's only one way actually for you to be saved. It's not up to you to just pick whatever path seems right to you because there's only one God who is the only saviour. This is not a very popular message. And maybe if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus in in the course of this year that you've tried to share the the life-giving message of Jesus with people in your classes or friends on campus, maybe you've felt that. Have you felt the clash between the one true living God's singularity, the only God, the only Saviour revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ, and the way our world just pursues lots and lots of different gods, lots of ways of salvation? Maybe you've felt that clash. Have you felt sometimes like it's just a bit easier to maybe not really embrace it, not really state it, sort of be a bit fuzzy about God's singularity. I know I often do. Which makes me ask the question of myself, do I really believe it? Do I really believe what the one true living God has revealed here, that he really is the only God and the only Saviour? Do I really believe that? (coughs) Well, that's not all he says here in this chapter because it gets amped up a little bit more. Jump down to verse 22 to 25. This one true living God, who is the only Saviour, says, Before me every knee will bow. Have a look at verses 23 to 25. He says, By myself I have sworn, my mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. Before me, every knee will bow. By me, every tongue will swear. They will say of me, in the Lord alone are righteousness and strength. All who have raged against him will come to him and be put to shame. But in the Lord, all the descendants of Israel 
will be found righteous and will exalt. Very clearly here, the one true living God is saying there is going to be a moment where everyone will actually acknowledge my singularity. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that I alone am am God, I alone, the Lord alone. But did you notice that last bit there? All those who have raged against him will come to him and be put to shame. But in the Lord, all the descendants of Israel will be found righteous and will exalt. This is going to be a moment not just of acknowledgement. This is going to be a moment of accountability. We will all appear before the one true living God. So yes, he alone is God. Yes, he alone is Saviour. And before him, we will all be held accountable. Uh, In the New Testament, reflecting on this particular verse, in Romans chapter 14, verses 10 to 12, you can look it up a bit later, Romans chapter 14, verse 10 to 12, you can see Paul reflects on this particular verse and he just his comment is, we will all give give an account of ourselves to God. That's what this verse teaches. We will all give an account of ourselves to God. So, the stakes are high on acknowledging God's singularity. The stakes are high, and yet we know that the reality, when you walk around this campus, or you just take a drive around Sydney, or maybe you've travelled to other parts of the world, how many people actually acknowledge the one true living God as their God? How many have given their life in love and service of Him? The answer is not many. In fact, there are countless numbers of people who don't know him at all. Now, I thought I'd dig a little bit in this, try to flesh this out a bit for you. And so um, I've just said the stakes are high. I want to talk about the need, though. Uh, have you ever, how many of you have ever looked at the Joshua Project website? A few of you. Look, I know that it's week 12 and you've got a few quizzes coming your way soon uh, and, and you need some distractions. Because you don't want to be spending all those hours just studying. You want some quality distractions, right? Not, I'm not talking Netflix, I'm talking quality. This website, may I say, is a gold mine of spirit-filled distraction for you. <laughs> that is, it's distraction that could have a really positive outcome for you, right? Uh, the Joshua Project, uh, they, they are interested in... Jesus' command to his disciples, go and be my witnesses to the very ends of the earth. They're interested in how is that going. That's what they try to track. That's a really complicated thing to do. So if you're a geographer or a statistician or a mathematician, why not do something really useful with your skills? Do something like this. This is really, really interesting. I'm sure you can find some other useful things to do. What this uh, graph is I've got here is they've divided in order to try to track how the sort of the spread of the good news about Jesus is going. They've, rather than thinking about countries and nations, which are a little bit artificial really, because within one country you can have all sorts of different nationalities and people groups. So it's, a, it's not really the right metric to use. So what they've done is divided the world into what they call people groups. And you can see the definition, people groups is the largest group in which the gospel can spread as a church-planting movement without encountering significant barriers of understanding or acceptance. I'll explain that because 
you've had that experience probably of trying to talk about Jesus with your friend if you're, if you're a Christian, and you might say, well, I've talked about Jesus and they didn't accept it. Well, that's right. That's because the human heart is often hard against the life, against the living message of Jesus. Right? So they're, they're not talking about that sort of battle to accept the, the hard human heart. They're talking about other things, things like language, right? So you parachute me into Spain, I can't speak a word in Spanish, and I try to share the gospel, I'm trying to speak English, and if the person I'm speaking to can't speak English and they just speak Spanish, there's a significant barrier, isn't it? I, how would a church planting movement go that I start? It's probably not going to go very far, because no one can understand what I'm saying. So culture, language, uh, potentially sort of political divide, those are all sort of barriers that might stop a church planting movement going forward. So when you use that category, they work out that within the world, there are 17,000 such people groups. And so then you try to work out, right, how's the gospel going out to all those different people groups? Well, you can see here the big red column. These are the unreached people groups. There are 7,000 what they call unreached people groups. What's an unreached people group? Right, unreached in their categories mean less than 2% of that group are evangelical and less than 5% are professing Christian. Now, if you, to give you an example, you think about Australia, Australia probably has less than 2% evangelical. But the number of people who profess to be Christian, according to the last census, is about 50%. Now, that doesn't mean they're all necessarily apologists, but they profess. What that means is, if you want to start a church planting movement in Australia, oh yes, I'm sure it'll be very, ministry's always difficult, it'll be difficult, but actually there's not many barriers to you starting it and it's sort of under God growing, right? So, unreached has a lot fewer people who would profess to be Christians. Now, how many people are in that sort of category? If you look over there, it says the population in unreached, 3.13 billion. I'm going to dig down a little bit further. Just one, one. Within these unreached people groups, there are some that are, they call frontier unreached people groups. These are people groups in which there is 0.1% or less professing Christian. That's a really, really small number. Now, according to them, there are 4,700 frontier unreached people groups, which is 1.8 billion. <coughs> what that means is this. If you lived in one of those people groups, those frontier people groups, the chances are that you will live your entire life and never hear the gospel and never meet a Christian. Because there are just so few in that people group who profess Christ, and the natural barriers will stop other church planting movements from reaching you. The only way you'll hear a gospel is if someone comes from a different people group and comes in to tell you, and then you've got all the challenges of that cross-cultural ministry. Does that make sense? 1.8 billion people live in that sort of circumstance. And the final set I put up there, there are 31 frontier groups which had more than 10 million people each. 31. So, I'm going to get 31 people to stand up. Okay, you ready? You have just to stand up. I don't, you don't need to do anything more than just stand up. Is that okay? <laughs> yeah? That's just it. One, 
10 million people. This is not artificial. This is the reality of the world today. The need is massive. Climb out of your lovely, little, beautiful, well-resourced valley. Look at us. We sit here the university lets us have a meeting here to talk about Jesus. Anyone can come. Go to churches where the gospel is taught it faithfully week in, week out. We live in such a rich little valley. And until you sort of talk to people in other people, you don't realise just how incredibly rich our valley is because most of the world, not just are there places where it's desert, most of the world doesn't look anything like this little valley that you're living your whole life in. Climb out of the valley. The need is huge. And the stakes are incredibly high. There is only one God. He alone is the same. And before him we will all be accountable. The need is huge. The stakes are high. If you want to know where those 31 frontier people groups with 10 million people in each one, this is where they are. They're all, as you'll notice, they're all in either Islamic majority places or Hindu majority countries. That's where those 31 people groups are situated. <coughs> Today, as we sit here. The need is huge. The stakes are high. However, as we've been looking at Isaiah 45, did you notice that I skipped a verse? What was the verse I skipped? 22. Yes, I skipped that for a reason. Let's go to verse 22 because what this tells us in the midst of this truth about God's singularity, it tells us about God's heart. What is God's heart? Well, I've put it up in big letters on the screen. So, you know, this is like the most important thing. Here it is. What does he say in this verse? He says, Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. This is the one true living God's heart. He doesn't sit back and just go, Oh, well, bad luck. That's going to be a bit tough on you guys, isn't it? No, his heart is that people would turn to him and be saved, that they might receive Salvation. Now, what do we mean by salvation here? Well, this is where I invite you to turn with me quickly to Isaiah 55. Just flick forward or swipe down or to the left or whatever you need to do to get to Isaiah 55. Isaiah 
Isaiah 55. A couple of things here. First of all, verses 1 to 3. This is God's invitation to people to come to him and be saved. Chapter 55, verse 1. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without cost. What a crazy verse this is. Have you I mean, anyone doing business, economics, like anything to do with money? Like, you, don't, you invite people to come and buy, inverted commas, buy wine and milk, buy whatever you need, with no, but actually pay nothing. What's that? What, what's that? Aside from crazy, it's called grace. It's where you give people what they are longing for, but ask nothing back. That's who the one true living God is. What does he say? Read it again. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread? and your labour on what does not satisfy. Listen, listen to me. Eat what is good, and your soul will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me. Hear me, that your soul may live. What is he offering here? What is this salvation? It is satisfaction for your soul. It's, it's, it's satisfaction for that thirst that you have for God. He promises to fill you, to give you what you can't get anywhere else. That's what he's offering. Or down verses 6 and 7. Verses 6 and 7, he says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the evil one their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them. And to our God, for he will freely pardon What's he offering? Forgiveness. Pardon. Mercy. Because we too have rejected his word and his ways. And he he wants to gift you a free pardon. He wants to satisfy the longings of your soul. That's who he is. Because he created you. He made you. He loves you as we see in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ and his resurrection again for you. See, what these chapters, these two chapters in particular, chapter 55 and 56, tell us is that God, the one true God, is on a mission to save. It's through listening to his word that you receive life. Chapter 56, sorry, chapter 55 is sort of directed to national Israel, but chapter 56 makes it clear that it expands out to others who are not from Old Testament nation of Israel. I'll just point out to you in chapter 56, verses 6 and 8, we read a section there, foreigners, that is non-Israelites, who bind themselves to the Lord. These, he says, I will bring to my holy mountain. There's an idea of that people are going to be included. So let's go back to sort of my little refrain. The need is huge. The stakes are high. But what do we learn here? Here we learn that the offer... Of life, satisfaction, pardon. The offer is unsurpassed. You are not going to find that anywhere else. The offer is unsurpassed and the solution is found in only one place. It's found only in him. 
the one true living God. The need is huge, the stakes are high, the offer he has for you is unsurpassed and it's found in him alone, found in only one place. So that's some thoughts about God's heart, but that's not all. We come to the final section in Isaiah chapter 66 and we get to God's method. So we've heard of God's offer, right? He has his offer, turn to me, all you ends of the earth, that you might be saved. How's he going to go about doing it? How's he going to go about doing it? Well, um, you need to sort of know a bit of context here. Throughout, uh, I'll explain it like this. The Bible, even though we've brought it together very conveniently into one sort of book, of course, it wasn't given to us by the one true living God in one particular moment. He drip-fed it to us over a very, very long period of time. But we've just brought it together now, standing on the other side of Jesus Christ, brought it together into one helpful volume. But often when you read it, you forget that actually it's been drip-fed to us over time, such that over time you get to know more of who he is. So, for example, Abraham knew more about the one true living God than Adam and Eve probably did. And King David knew more about the one true living God than Abraham did because he lived later and had more of God's revelation of himself through the Old Testament scriptures. And you and I, standing on the other side of God's ultimate revelation of himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, we know more about the one true living God than Abraham, than Moses, who saw God face to face in airplanes. You know more about God than they did because more of it has been revealed to you here in the Scriptures, which makes this book pretty precious, doesn't it? Now, one of the consequences of that is, because this is called progressive revelation, because of this, when you're reading through the Old Testament, some things that you read there only become clarified as you get further on. So, for example, in most of the Old Testament, it seems that the way that God is going to bring salvation to the ends of the earth is by inviting people from everywhere to come to him. Seems to be like an inward flow to him and in the Old Testament to his capital city, Jerusalem. (coughs) What becomes apparent when you get to Isaiah 66 is a particular moment of clarity where something more is revealed. What's clear in Isaiah 66 is that the way people are going to come in is by God's people going out. God's people go out, proclaim him, And that draws people in. So let's have a look at that. Isaiah chapter 66. Let's jump in there. At verses 19 to... uh, Why start verse 18? It's the Lord speaking. And I, because of their actions and their imaginations, am about to come and gather all nations and tongues and they will come and see my glory. That sounds like the standard Old Testament line. They, I will gather them, they will come. Notice what comes next. I will set a sign among them and I will send some of those who survive to the nations, to Tarshish, to the Libyans, the Lydians, famous as archers, to Tubal and to Greece and to the distant islands that have not heard of my name, sorry, my fame or seen my glory. They will proclaim my glory among the nations and they will bring all your brothers from all the nations to my holy mountain in Jerusalem as an offering to the Lord on horses, in chariots and wagons, on mules and camels, says the Lord. They will bring them, as the Israelites bring their grain offerings, to the temple of the Lord in ceremonially clean vessels. 
And I will select some of them also to be priests and Levites, says the Lord. So here's this moment of clarity. Actually, the way the, the good news about the one true living God is going to go out to the ends of the earth is because God's people are going to go out and proclaim his glory among the nations and that will draw people back in. Now, if you fast forward to the other side of the Lord Jesus Christ, that makes sense now of why Jesus says to his disciples at the end of Matthew's Gospel, um, so I, I'm all authority in heaven and earth been given to me, so go and make disciples of all nations. He sends them out. Or in the beginning, uh, the end of Luke or the beginning of Acts where he says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. He's sending them out because that was always God's plan from Isaiah 66. And that comes to its fulfilment in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll give you two references later that you might like to go and um, look up. Revelation chapter 22, verse 17, where in the light of the proclaiming the message about Jesus, we hear an echo of one of the passages we've just looked at in Isaiah. Let those who are thirsty come. That's what Isaiah 55, because the fulfilment of that message, come all you who are thirsty, is in the proclamation of Jesus. That's the message that will, that will fill your thirst, that will meet your thirst. Or in Romans chapter 15, verse 16, Paul picks up on this passage in Isaiah 66 and talks about his own proclamation of Jesus and says that he's proclaimed the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God. Picking up on the Isaiah 66 language. So, We've seen that the need is huge. We've seen that the stakes are high. We've seen that the offer is unsurpassed and that the solution is found in only one place. What would you add to it from this about the means? What's the means of this message, this life-saving message of Jesus getting out to us? What's the means? The answer is we are the means. God's people are the means. He sends out his people into the world with that saving message to declare his praises amongst the nations. The need is huge, the stakes are high, the offer is unsurpassed, the solution is only one place, and we are the means. Do you see now why I said 30 minutes ago that this 30 minutes might actually change the direction of your life? I've invited you to walk out of your little valley, your comfortable, lovely valley with the blessing of the Lord, and climb the mountain and actually see the need. The need is huge. You know that the stakes are now high. You know that the offer is unsurpassed and the solution is found in one place and you know that God's plan is that we are the means. So what are you going to do about it? In the EU, we talk about having a passion for the less reached and the less resourced. Those who don't have the opportunity to hear the gospel of Jesus or those who have less resources in which to actually spread that very gospel in the place that they are. It's a nice idea. It's, it, it gets traction, I think, because people think, oh, yeah, yeah, we should care for the needy. And, you know, there's the gospel needy. So we sort of... It's got to be more than an idea. How will it shape you? Will you make radical life decisions? Because we are the means of God's plan. I'll finish by sharing a story. This is Mel. Mel was <coughs> here in the EU. She was in the EU, finished about five years ago. She did arts communications. Um, 
She graduated, she got a job working in arts communications here in Sydney. She did that for a little while, and then she got a job in Brisbane um, doing arts media communications there, and just recently she's moved to Vancouver, Canada. So I'm pretty close to live. Just in the last week, Mel sent me an email. I'm going to share a little bit of it with you. This is what she said. She said, during my generation of the EU, Rowan introduced the concept of less reach, less resource. <coughs> Rowan's impassioned plea is now ingrained in my approach to ministry. I've lovingly cursed him for it. <laughs> While I haven't gone radically remote since uni, Brisbane and now Vancouver, both cities, she says, are very dark. Dormant churches are selling off land to developers. Meanwhile, Bible-based churches struggle to even find venues to meet. But there have been easy opportunities in both cities, big and trendy churches that would give me instant friends. You feel full of that? Go to a city, there's a big vibrant church. That's the obvious place to go, right? But Rowan's LRLR mantra is stuck in my head. Now, I would say that's not me. I'd say that's the Lord. That's his Holy Spirit taking his word and grinding it into her mind and soul. It's stuck in my head, and so twice now, smaller, faithful churches, church plants three to five years on, is where I found myself. If this is for real, friends, then maybe you're going to get out of that valley. Not just come out, have a good look around, walk back in. Actually go somewhere else. Because the need is huge. The stakes are high. The offer is unsurpassed. The solution is found in only one place. And who are the means? Thanks, Rowan. Guys, just want to pray with me. Lord God, you are Lord. There is no other God, and you are the only Saviour. We'll all appear before you, and every knee will bow down and give you an account of ourselves to you. Lord, the stakes are high. Please put it on our hearts to reach the 1.8 billion people who live their lives never hearing of how much you love them, love that led you to the cross. You're on a mission to save, having mercy on those whom you bring to your holy mountain, and your plan to do this is through sending out your people. The need is huge. The stakes are high. The offer is unsurpassed. The solution is in only one place. Lord, we are the means. Help us to make radical life decisions because of this truth. Amen.